Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, music supervisor Ed Bailey, joins us to talk about his work on small acts. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So make yourself comfortable as we jump into the conversation with Ed. Hi, thanks for joining me today, Ed. Absolute pleasure. Cheers for having me on this kind of graying December Eve. <laughs> uh, I don't think we'll ever get a white Christmas in England. It just It's always rain and miserable. Think, no, the, the season has shifted too much. We'll be, we're going to be having like a beachy Christmas before we get a white Christmas again. Got another thousand years before... <laughs> before the seasons <laughs> rotate back to this being a white you know what, i wouldn't complain about beach christmas i had one last no. year and it was just you know what it's so weird seeing a christmas tree when it's like 40 degrees <laughs> i feel that i feel sorry for the guys who still dress up as santa oh uh, in the heat oh, well, well, uh, no because then you can get like the um the coat it'd be like a gilet vest and then like shorts <laughs> You know, it just makes comfort, and then short t shirt sleeve t shirts or vests, and that's that. Um, is the is is the, but you always have to wear the beard though, right? Because do you think that's what he does as he travels the globe. He's he's got his zip offs, <laughs> and he <laughs> zip halfway halfway around halfway around the globe. He zips his uh his lower <laughs> legs back on. <laughs> Potentially, oh, I just got that image in my head. Uh, just like now I'm just picturing Tim Allen doing that uh, from a Santa Claus movie <laughs> that'll be number four okay. <laughs> be like the, the Santa Cruz or something but we're not here to talk about Tim Allen or uh, or like uh, about Santa Claus we're here to talk about your role on the anthology film slash series of small acts as people have reread in the title of the podcast you were the music supervisor I guess where I want to start off is what is the role of a music supervisor? So the, the music supervisor is effectively head of department for music. So it encompasses a whole bunch of musical roles creatively and administratively. I guess one of our key most often talked about roles is, is the source track. So helping find and license existing songs for a production. And when we're doing that, we'll collaborate really closely with mainly the director and the editor to help pinpoint tracks for specific scenes. We'll also, again, depending on the productions, you kind of wear different hats depending on what's needed. Um, we'll get into score supervision and original song recordings. So that can be helping find and, and contract and support the original score composer and any other music producers and arrangers that we're bringing in to create and record score and songs for a film or a TV project. And then also with certain situations on camera talent, so coordinating musicians and supporting cast members who have musical performances. So if there's on camera talent who are, you know, it could be a band playing in the background in a scene, or it could be all the way through to like a lead cast member performing a song, we'll be involved in that whole process of making sure that they're really comfortable with how that song is 
delivered, uh, be it bringing in vocal coaches, handling recording sessions, working with the onset sound team to make sure that miming or recording on set is all going to go smoothly. And then also, like again, kind of licensing those tracks and doing the whole kind of back-end fun bit of the contracts. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of hats, um, but and sometimes it's you know it's a bit of a pick and mix. You might just be doing source tracks in one production, or you might just be doing score. Um, sometimes you kind of get to chuck it all together and do a whole bunch of different things. So when you were mentioning as well that you get involved with the the actors so that they sort of are prepped on set to sort of if they're performing a song, does that mean you were involved with like the MCs? when they were performing and saying and sort of delivering certain lines during the show as well? Yeah, I mean, like sometimes it's... So with Small Axe, there, there were some specific introductions that we made from people to make sure that the right people were involved to help advise on that stuff. So with Love is Rock, our, our sound system guys, we, we basically brought in... We, at first, we brought in a guy called Gladdy Wax, who is a, a sound system legend from Notting Hill Carnival. He's he's had a sound system in Notting Hill Carnival for for decades. He runs a great reggae specialist record store as well. And we did a session with him and the guys to to learn what toasting the crowd is like and just kind of how to get the right energy for that sort of thing. That actually ended up then being expanded upon a fair bit by Dennis Bovell, who we ended up casting as a bit of a kind of Easter egg. Um, he's, you can see him in the Janet K. City Games scene in Love is Rock, and he was part of the creation of that song. He's co-writer, producer of, of that song, and, um, and a, a legend in the Love is Rock genre. So one set, Dennis actually became a really big part of helping get that vibe and letting people know what those parties were like and just what the energy was like and helping helping the our MCs just kind of feel like they were giving it the right kind of energy and they themselves you know obviously do their own research um as as actors and and do everything that they can to kind of get into that role but I think especially with an era piece like this giving them some face time with people who have literally done that you know they've worn those shoes and they've they've gone out there in that same era and had their sound system sets um is is the best way to learn really so yeah dennis was was really useful in that i kind of want to go back to the beginning again as well with like how did the project come about and what was it that sold it to you and abby who you work with yeah so sold it sold it to me i like it it didn't take a lot of selling there's uh, (laughs) Someone said Steve McQueen and new production and we were like knocked on the window like we're here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we, had, we were lucky because we, we had worked with um, one of the producers, Mike Elliott, on a few films in the past and, and Mike's a fantastic producer who we've just been lucky to work with on a, on a bunch of really cool productions and, and he gave us a shout when, when this started and, and pretty early on because it was obvious in script development how important music was going to be and and across the different scripts be it in Stephen Allison's or Stephen Korsh's scripts there were different songs that had been mentioned um scene to scene and they'd be kind of penciled in the margin as inspiration and as ideas and just to kind of really start painting what the soundtrack could be 
so it became it was obvious to the producers pretty early on that they needed to get a, a music supervisor in and start you know working stuff out we we'll we'll get on board really early with these things when it's quite musically heavy because it's it's a budget consideration and also it's a pre-shoot consideration you really don't want to go on set and start filming something with songs involved without those songs being pre-cleared because it's an absolute killer if you've caught that music on on mic and you can't get rid of it and you have to try and override it in the edit it's one of those things that you just can't really fix but steve's approach was entirely like i don't he didn't ever want you know people mime dancing in a room and then adding it in post afterwards he was always going to create that event he was going to make the lovers rock blues party and people were going to experience that and that's how he was going to get the best performance it was the only way that he was ever going to approach it so for that reason we we needed to be involved really early to make sure that there was a good lead time up to clearing tracks clearing the playlist of the night so it could literally be played back on set and that event could effectively happen so yeah we were never sold it because we were just straight away like wow i mean this is it's ambitious the subject matter we knew was going to be incredibly important it was just um really every part of the project just felt like one of those big moments in in uk filmmaking for us like straight off the bat and to have an opportunity to work with steve and his production team was incredibly inviting we we, we, we were in from day one because music plays a huge part in small acts it does feel like a character in its own right. It's just always there. It's always present. There's always a certain vibe to it and really adds to what's being presented on screen. And with it being such an intangible element um, that each viewer will have like a different response to it, how important was it picking the right songs? And how closely did you need to collaborate with Steve? to involve those overarching musical direction of the series? Where should I start? I mean, I guess like when it came to the, the kind of, I'll, I'll, I'm going to kind of go through those in reverse <laughs> um, in terms of like thinking about the overarching musical approach to the series. It was quite, it was quite funny because the, we basically we hit Lovers Rock first because that was the one that had the, like I say, like having music played back on set. Mo- there were on camera bits and pieces in the others, like a steel band. Were well, two different steel bands in Mangrove and in Education. We've got a scene with a teacher doing this kind of excruciating long performance of House of the Rising Sun to to the kids, and also a London's Burning performance. There, there's a, there was a few on camera things, but really the the big weight of those was was in Lovers Rock. So we were kind of straight into that without talking about the an overall arc because each of them were really standalone films. There was, you know, they're from this, the same era, but the it's not like there was a canon between them musically that needed to follow from Mangrove into Lovers Rock into Alex Wheatle into Red, White and Blue. Like it was... They were treated as individual things. And because of that, they each had their own identity. I think a lot of that identity was drawn naturally from the characters and the 
script development that, that Steve and his team had done that side in terms of things like the Alex Wheatall film, for instance. Um, Alex is discovering at the front of that film reggae for the first time. So we got to play more with roots reggae and, and more kind of protest music, really, the kind of heart of reggae. And then we're in Brixton um, when he moves to, to Brixton and, and going into record stores and experiencing dub, setting up his own sound system. Whereas in Red, White and Blue with, with um, John Boyega's playing the role of, of Leroy Logan, and also we, we meet his friend Lee John, he's far more listening to like soul music and has maybe more of an American influence, the Al Greens and the Marvin Gaye's and artists like Beggar and Co and, and Lee John's own band, Imagination. So there's, there's different musical flavors and influences on each episode. Um, so they each kind of have their own unique, each film has its own unique identity uh, rather than the kind of series itself having this kind of one encapsulated thing. The, the main encapsulation across it all is that this series was a celebration of black culture of the time and with that black music. We've got an amazing, I hope kind of emotionally and kind of physically like putting people in that space. There should be a lot of evocative nostalgia of showing what blues parties were really like, showing what the vibe of the mangrove restaurant was really like and helping encapsulate that era and celebrating it. There's obviously a lot of weight that comes with that narratively in terms of exposing racism, exposing the hardship of the time. But from a musical perspective, it was about making sure that you could feel a part of it and experience it the way that it was. So musically, a lot of it was going for not songs that are telling you how to feel in that scene, but songs that help set that scene. And you kind of talk about it being comparable to it dressing the set and, uh, you know, talking about the tangibility of it. And that is the, the best thing to hear because it's, it's meant to transport you to Brixton 1981 or it's meant to make you feel like you're in that Notting Hill setting in, in Mangrove. And hopefully, you know, the songs that you hear on the radio or that we used over montage sequences or that you kind of see at the parties will evoke nostalgia for viewers who were there, who experienced it themselves. And for others will hopefully in some way give them at least a fraction of an experience to really feel like they know, they really know what those environments were like now um, and celebrate it. I hope that kind of gives you a bit of an idea of the... <laughs> well, yeah, because it's um, when you're jumping between five different shows and that they're not, they're all very different. It's interesting to hear what needs to be considered for each show and what, what like your understanding of the content is and putting the right songs to match what's written on the paper. But you mentioned as well beforehand that when you got the scripts that they had notes on the side with songs that inspired what had been written. Did that sort of help you creatively in knowing this is what they were sort of going for? Or did that potentially 
make things easier knowing that they knew what songs they had in mind yeah i mean it was it was a great launching pad and um you know a lot of that came from various conversations that steve had had um including with alex wheatle and and with his co-writers on the scripts and and just himself you know his own record collection the the ones that were maybe the the thing that it did for us really was kind of it helped put us in into the mindset of where steve was headed musically and really kind of what he wanted to to achieve and what that mixtape was the thing that my first role when getting involved had to be is that kind of I'm, I'm the kind of the messenger to come in and pop the balloon of songs that you can't have as well, <laughs> which is really like, oh, okay. I wish that we could have that tune, but it's just not clearable. And there's a lot of that within music in general, but you know, with certain genres, there can be things where the rights are like all over the place with, it happens a lot in hip hop where there's a lot of music that uses samples and, you know, the artist just kind of use that sample when they're just creating beats for the sake of creating beats and then one day these become commercial records and and then you've got to negotiate these samples and sometimes it doesn't work out and that means it makes it really hard for you to then use that that song likewise similar thing in the world of reggae with people adopting each other's rhythms and and basically like using the same bass lines and beats and 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 lyrics there's a lot of covers within that world so there was a lot of people kind of interpolating each other's songs and sharing things or, you know, they just rights disagreements come up. So, um, and that's just, you know, the way of the world of music. But when you kind of have a film like Lovers Rock that had like a good, I don't know, like 30 tracks or something in there, one of the first things that we've, that I had to do was kind of peel it apart and work out what can't we have and how are we going to, re- what should we replace these with? which was probably one of my first meetings with Steve actually was just sitting down and flying through replacement ideas and, and, you know, kind of seeing what else could fit for this lover's scene or what could fit for this dub scene and, and making sure that we had things that were as good or, or if not hopefully in a lot of situations better because then we're, we're actually really getting into it then and thinking about it specifically. Whereas in the script, maybe it's more just kind of, give a quick flavor like this is this is the kind of mood that we're thinking at this point in the writer's room but then when we're involved it's kind of more okay let's let's really dig into it now and see what could be the tune at this point in the film so yeah it's it's dead handy because they you know the, the script gives you this real sense of where the script writer and the director's heads are at and it really it really set the tone of of the film because it's you know, and also like reggae is a complex genre. Like there's a big breadth to it, especially when we look at things like, you know, roots reggae and songs that are more about protest, and then songs that are that then kind of or more about religion, or and then you kind of go through to lovers rock, which is far more about exactly that. It's romance, and then through to dub, which can be like trancing and meditative and deep and housey and heavy, like there's a big spectrum to it. So kind of having those scripts, script notes from the start is a really nice way in to kind of go, okay, yeah, this is, this is the bit that we're talking about. You're mentioning about clearing songs and how difficult it could be. What is the process of clearing the song? 
is there some songs that are really easy that it was literally you send one email or is it a case of like it's just a case by case basis yeah so it's uh it's yeah it's case by case but the the general kind of rights thing is that there's you have to clear the recording and you have to clear the publishing and the publishing is basically for the the songwriter for the composers and obviously the recording is for the like the artist and the record label because they can be totally different like you could write the song and i could record it so we've kind of got these two different sets of rights that we need to clear and then you've got musicians unions and and that kind of thing as well for for the orchestras and things like that that performed on that recording and you need to pay separate fees to them actually within small acts we worked really closely with the with the bbc and their music copyright and clearance team um this is a bbc production so we worked really closely with them and a lot of lot of our role in terms of getting involved in the clearances for this particular anthology was to help find those artists that were really hard to find because there's there's a bunch which you know you, you can't were harder to track down because the record label went under years ago and the rights got sold or it's kind of hard to find those writers because they've they've maybe unfortunately they're not around anymore and we're trying to find their their estate and that kind of thing so we got a bit more columbo on it and we're kind of digging into kind of helping them track people down so that was a lot of our role on small acts outside of the creative um but yeah so traditionally it's you know when we're kind of working on something and doing all the clearance it's it's record label publishers unions it's kind of those are the three kind of sets of clearances and you know you could have like a huge song and people will hear it and go man that must have been hard to clear and then you could have this kind of unknown crate dug gem and and then actually that's the one that's really hard the other one yeah it might be more expensive but it's not necessarily always the case that the big one is the difficult one i can imagine well especially if you have somebody like the bbc's music clearances behind you probably makes it a lot easier because of their contacts must reach far and wide but i think i have done i did i did clearances once on my job for music and it is really hard it is really <laughs> confusing as well especially when somebody picks as you said the bigger songs that people might know they're easy to contact but then when it's somebody you know random at random and it is just like ugh. It all it just it just gets to the point. It was like it's just not worth it. Can you just pick another song? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know we're just like I'm maybe a little bit sadistic. And actually, when there's when there's something where you can't have it or you can't find the artist, and that's why you can't have it, we we just kind of stuck to our guns and kept digging as much as we could. And you know, there were things we had to give up on. There always are, but they and you know sometimes it can be for different reasons. Sometimes the money is just not there or and sometimes the, you know, the, they don't want that used to happen. People can deny it if they don't want it to happen. But with this, I don't know. There are a few. There are a few where we end up kind of making late night phone calls to Jamaica to 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 an estate uh, who doesn't speak English, and unfortunately, we equally are struggling to kind of google translate wasn't helping us uh to, to uh, speak with them so like there's there's a lot of situations where we're calling people across the world trying to you know clear tunes and and a good chunk of them worked out which was great because for us that meant that we got to kind of creatively stick with what we wanted to 
but yeah, music rights are one of those things where it's like a don't try this at home a lot of the time. Like you wanna you wanna know what you're doing because you don't want you don't want something to go wrong and for something to come out of the woodwork later on. Especially companies with all their all their team of lawyers and the fancy sort of terminology that they'll use to scare you. Um, is even doing a theme song for the podcast was difficult because they want to pick something that I could get sued over something. It's basically risking something like that. Those people who probably turned you down must be kicking themselves now, but you know, we're seeing how popular the show has become, but with small acts jumping between different years, years and decades, exploring various themes and topics, what, what new challenges did this present for you? Interesting, yeah. I mean, there's, musically, there's a few, like I said earlier on the way that each film kind of tackles different things, like has its own kind of identity. There's a few parts of it that handled the, the kind of gravity of the subject matter in different ways uh, musically because of that. So for instance, with Mangrove, we had the pleasure of Mika Levi scoring the, the Mangrove film. She created some incredible music for it. And that kind of had to be because source tracks weren't going to do the same thing. It was like, it would have been the wrong direction to go in and she, she was able to, to, uh, support and narrate those sequences and to also she was great at extrapolating uh, themes from things like the protest and the rhythm of the march and and the the visceral nature of watching this protest she she turned it into into original score it really incredibly with with her protest theme and then equally with the old bailey sequences when they're in court this woozy grandeur about the court when the score now shifts over to a more orchestrated place and it's alien and kind of oppressive but giant and like they're in their comfort zone and and kind of almost nonchalantly kind of handing out handing out sentences to to people and there's this kind of like ivory tower vibe to the music that just kind of feels really powerful and really strong and it makes you feel like you're in the dock and and it's intimidating so there are kind of there are hurdles when trying to musically like get across certain narratives if you're only working within licensed music and you don't want to just kind of stitch together existing source tracks to kind of try and do that and original score is an amazing you know it's 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 the way to kind of then that and, and Mika was just kind of perfect for those those moments so yeah I mean to me that was they were kind of the bigger kind of narrative switches musically or the things that kind of stood out um, separately from a lot of the licensed material there's then some very different kind of vibe in education there's a lot less licensed music in education in, in general there's a couple of there's a small faces, lazy Sunday montage cue when the kids are playing on the bus, and it's this like, hopefully, really um, just kind of weight off your shoulders moment in an otherwise really, really hard to reconcile story. It's something that you know you really grapple with and get really frustrated by when 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 watching it. 
And that's kind of one of those moments of levity. But then you have a lot of other moments in there that were actually more on camera, like the kids doing London, London's Burning, like I mentioned earlier on, and, and, the, and the teacher doing House of the Rising Sun, where the music that's there was actually very much a narrative device. First one with the kids doing London's Burning, it's like, this is school, this is relatable, this is something we've all done is like sing songs in school and that, <laughs> that like ear piercing sound of xylophones getting smashed up and bad tubers like honking in the corner and kids kind of singing out of tune. But it's, it's a good, it's a positive nostalgia. And then that kid getting then ripped out of that class is that that's the bubble popping moment. And that kind of like, holy hell, like his, his story is not the same as mine when I was at school and why was his experience so different? And it's when it kind of first opens that door into the world that education explores. And then the other narrative device musically in that episode is then the teacher doing this kind of grueling performance of House of the Rising Sun to his students as if it's like this exertion of power over them. It's kind of a laziness of being a poor teacher. It's this kind of, you can feel their boredom as the music deliberately grinds back through another verse and then another verse. It's, it's the polar opposite of the, the Lovers Rock Silly Games cue where the, the kind of repeating of that cue and making it bigger and bigger is this huge celebration. It's, it's the opposite. It's this guy is like grinding it out and kind of wearing, wearing you down as a viewer. So, so there, were, there was some kind of interesting narrative musical cues that we could explore and kind of different ways of using music throughout it without doing kind of straight licenses um, and kind of making them a bit more of a device. You were mentioning as well, working with the composer and how it switched from sort of licensed music to composed music. Does your song choices affect the way a composer and sound editor works? Or are they heavily involved as well in what you're doing? Yeah, and like vice versa, I think, like the first thing, I mean, the, uh, the, the relationship, again, this kind of like, de- this depends, like, you know, film to film. It really changes in, in different projects or TV show to TV show as to how that relationship works. With this one, it, Mika and Steve worked really closely and just had this kind of duality and were able to kind of go and, and kind of explore a vision together for Mangrove. And Mika was often actually really good at expressing when she thought musically there shouldn't be anything in a sequence. And, you know, a, a great composer will do that, will kind of identify when a music track when when a be it a source cue or a piece of score doesn't need to be there it's kind of surplus to to what we need it can overdo it and she was really great at, at letting us know when she felt that that was the case and i think you know it's the same it's certainly the same with sound i mean we with small acts the the relationship was very much like with with the edit so the the music is kind of you know, once once we've got past the shoot and all of those tracks and all of those songs are kind of locked in, when it comes to kind of finding new tracks and going, hey, let's try this here, let's try that there, by the time the edit had been done, which which happened over a number of months, 
the the songs were pr- they they were like they were pretty much in and then a few things would change in sound when we're doing the final mix you know in terms of treating pieces of music making them feel more environmental that kind of thing but it can on other productions it can go the other way and it can just as much be that the sound team can you know like kind of like you know you can be, you can be sat there and just kind of go like actually yeah you're right this this is the wrong energy here and that can that can be educated by when you suddenly add if you've got this high action sequence and then you add in loads of sound again that could be too much it could crash with your cue it could change the pacing or the vibe of it because of other stuff that's going on so it needs to be a bit of give and take and it need there needs to be a, a collaborative approach to it because any one point within that process is no lesser than than somebody else's point in that process so we've got to take each other's opinions on board and and keep it collaborative i can imagine that you don't want to steal the limelight from each other when you're working on something like this but then when you have the mix of going from a normal song to composition of song as well as a big i think that's like a massive art in itself to sort of mix them two together and make it seamless and not not sort of clash I think the funniest thing I must have seen online is when people talk about the music on the show, I think they're sort of mistaken that it's all the composer picking everything. And I don't have the heart to tell them that it's all like, also it's just a team of a number of people sorting everything out and blending it all together. And it's just, I think sometimes people forget how much work goes into it. And we live in the shadows. (laughs) Yes, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it's a you know it's a funny one because like the the music supervisor is often a, an unsung role in a, in a lot of productions, and you know you kind of you kind of sometimes see the kind of those that kind of lucky enough in Hollywood to kind of get those big prominent credits at the end of a you know get a title card and get that kind of thing, and you have a lot of people who you know push for supervision awards and that kind of thing, and for you know for different bodies and. And that to to kind of celebrate the supervision role as as you would with costume and and kind of other other heads of department and other roles within a film, but ultimately the the experience of working on something like this and people online talking about it and and expressing a love for the music is like just so satisfying and just such an incredible thing to see and to hear and to get that feedback i mean i was involved in this for about 18 months and obviously steve's been cooking it for a lot longer and and um and when you kind of see these things finally out in the wild and for people to be asking hey what's that cue and i'll kind of like sneak into the twitter chat and be like there's this um (laughs) so wait wait i just so you basically do you just on the twitter do you just search lovers rock this that the other and just see what people are talking about (laughs) is that what you're admitting to (laughs) (laughs) i can just put on my groucho mask and just sniff in like the um yeah i'm like tiger one one music five on on twitter no i just I, I couldn't help it when a few of them went out, but just to have like have a little stare at Twitter and just see what was going on and watch, especially when Lovers Rock was like trending and and that was getting so much social feedback because it's incredible seeing all the big reviews, like you know seeing the the big press 
giants saying big things. But when it goes out on on BBC in in the UK, Amazon in the US, and and you kind of you I'm I'm there watching it obviously because I'm finally seeing it on a on a broadcast. <laughs> it's just kind of like we're all we're all going to tune in. Everyone who's worked on it on any production, you know, does like that that moment when you finish a film and you see it in the cinema or that minute that you finish a TV show and then you see it on TV. It's it's this really um even though we've got odds and ends that we're still clearing up and working on, that kind of feels like the moment and and there's a massive absence in 2020 of rap parties of like getting together and having that kind of cathartic moment of of sharing something and kind of being like we did this that that's that accomplishment that productions get when they rap after spending a couple of years together working on something hasn't been there in the same kind of way so we're naturally all kind of plugged in watching it on and on tv and then keeping half an eye on socials and it just exploded like everyone talking about you know how amazing the cast were how amazing the costume was how incredible the cinematography and direction was and then seeing all of these really powerful comments about the music was just it was just this amazing sense of relief and amazing sense of joy and also just kind of like getting personal stories hearing people talk about when they went to blues parties and and they danced like that to that Dennis Brown song or that, Oh yeah, I remember that dub hit. Like those kind of moments are just really when they're met with enthusiasm or when they're opening people's eyes to some new music some that they've never heard. And then they're going, wow, that's a cool song. Silly games started going up the iTunes chart. It peaked at like number 25 or so that week on the iTunes chart. And this is, I mean, Janet K. Silly games is like 1977. Or thereabouts, and like, and it's suddenly after Lovers Rock goes out, it's it's back in the iTunes chart, and so yeah, like I won't lie, <laughs> it is amazing, like uh, kind of seeing that response, and yeah, kind of gathering kind of non-professional input on it, like actual viewers getting people's real emotions, and yeah, it, it, it was quite, it was an amazing experience. Even Barack Obama has is a fan. He listed uh, Lovers Rock as one of his favorite films of the year. So that's incredible. <laughs> he's, so, I mean, he's got. He's. We all know he's got good taste, right? <laughs> debatable, debatable. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, no. But even that, like, that's the sort of the reach that this sort of show has. And I know you've released the um, playlist on Spotify, which I'll link in the show notes for people to hear if they've missed it. But yeah, it's just incredible to see the reach and conversations online about it. Um, I think, the, you know, one of the things I found particularly powerful about that reach is is how well it's done in the US. And because, you know, these are very, they're very British stories, but they, they translate. And, you know, they're, they're from specific biographies. They're, they're, and they're from big moments in, in history, like like the Brixton Uprising. And and Mangrove Nine, and and you know these these stories are are very British. They're very London, but then, as I say, they they translate. They're relatable and they're incredibly important. So then to see that permeate in the US for people to really get it and to for it to resonate is um, is really really special. And kind of celebrities and and 
and <laughs> leaders of the free world aside, like to to again kind of see like the the average person watching this on Amazon to have that kind of response is incredible. You know, especially in in a year like this where where Black Lives Matter has has had this kind of great resurgence and this this like huge amount of of worldwide attention for these stories to be shared cross continent that are relatable that are familiar and that show different struggles but for similar reasons is is just incredible that that it just kind of shows the an international solidarity as well for for these narratives um which i think is kind of more important than ever um so to for it not to have just been treated as british stories for a british audience means a hell of a lot is there a particular placement that is special to you or one that just that you can't believe that it pulled off perfectly like for me, I love the one in Alex Whittle where it transitions from the sticks to Brixton and it sort of just captures his like his emotion and going from somewhere he doesn't really like to this whole trans you know, to this whole new world. That's a really that's a that's a cool choice. <laughs> uh, I think that's fair as well. We get we have like Desert Island Discs. We're uh, playing on the, on the radio in the car, so you kind of have that classical by the Sleepy Lagoon piece playing, and then it cuts to I think it's Rupee Edwards, Skanga, and and it's yeah, it's just it just feels very Brixton, doesn't it? It's just that kind of transition from Surrey to Brixton is is wicked. I'm glad that you like that one. Um, I mean, there's it's funny because it's kind of full of the whole the whole anthology is full of minor victories. <laughs> There's like lots of little kind of, yeah, great. Like we got that uh, Prince Farai track in at the record store and it's, yeah, that's a really cool moment. And then there's like even a lot of kind of background cues that like meant as much because it's, you know, just because they're kind of personal loves and, and things that like, I, I really love the Beggar and Co. Somebody Help Me Out cue in, in Red, White and Blue. I, th- I think that the that Lovers Rocks, because of its, because of just the prominence of the music, is the is the one that's always gonna kind of stick with for the maybe the the bigger musical moments. I really love the. I I, I mean, I'm just never gonna get over the the Janet K City Games use that's in there because it's just it was just magical. And as I say, kind of having Dennis Bovell involved, and you can hear him singing in the crowd when the crowd were singing a cappella. And a lot of that was a very natural thing that occurred on set. Steve set the vibe, he lit the fuse and he let it unfold and and the cast kept singing and kept singing and kept singing and he kept filming. <laughs> and and you can hear Dennis Bovell's like deep bellow of a voice kind of cutting through and then you can hear some amazing supporting artists smashing that falsetto, like really hitting that insanely high note. And it was just, it's just a, a really magic moment, which, you know, that's always going to be a big standout. Because I think, I think one of the reasons being that it kind of sums up a lot of the, the purpose of Small Axe and a lot of, the, um, a lot of the celebration behind it all, hearing those voices singing in unison and, and really going for it. And, the, you know, it just kind of shows how the, the cast, would, they would stay in. 
like this it was it was all happening so yeah that's always going to be a really special one and, and another one which was um, which i loved as well is actually the beginning montage sequence in mother's rock is cry tough and the originals robin hood dub because that is one which steve really wanted and always wanted and it's one of those ones which we needed to kind of get full-on investigative to to clear this and kind of track down the estate to get approval and i kid you not i think i think we spent 12 months trying to trying to find who owned that recording various people have released it on compilations but don't actually own the rights um for film and things like that so and yeah so that took about a year and that's uh that's one of those kind of it's a three minute scene it's when they're setting up the sound system and testing it out at the beginning of 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 lovers rock and this kind of first dub track comes in and it's daytime it's it's super chilled, like food's being cooked in the kitchen, people are getting ready. It to me that just kind of evokes exactly what it's like when like setting up a party, that kind of buzz before whatever your party scene is and whatever year, whatever the era is, whether it's friends coming over for a barbecue or whether it's like setting up a big house system or or, or a big um, dub system like this. It's that kind of warm up, test out the speakers, check the environment, spend a year trying to clear a track. No, that's a good one. That's a good choice as well. It just captures the the sort of like calm before the storm, in as terms of like a part. You know, as you said, when you you're setting up before a big event, and just everybody, you can tell everybody's in a good mood and everybody's going to have a good time. And especially when you're in the kitchen as well. Like I've, I just I was instantly hungry as soon as I saw that food. <laughs> it just looked it just looked so good. I try like watching the same clips over and over and over again in an edit. <laughs> How many deliveries can you have in a day? <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm glad I didn't have to do any of that. My penultimate question is, whilst doing your research, what was your primary method for music discovery? Oh, good question. I mean, it's kind of, it's, our, it's obviously it's our job to be pretty nerdy, basically. <laughs> got to be dorks. You've got to be a dork to be a music supervisor and you've got to be a bit of a hoarder like for records be it digitally or physically just like keeping playlist upon playlist in whatever method that you do that and um with with this um there was a lot of i mean so my my background before being a music supervisor was working uh, in publishing and, and for me one of my kind of like fondest memories publishing wise was was working for a reggae publisher based in notting hill and we we were in this house right beside notting hill gate and had an amazing catalog um including bob marley including a lot of toots and the maytals bands like third world steel pulse burning spear there was a whole load of incredible influence on my musical taste that formed over the over the years that i worked there it was my first kind of like big music gig, really. And research-wise for a project like this, like, you know, you, I'd always kind of start with the things that you know and that are like in your own collection. And then because this is such an era piece and because it's so year-specific, a lot of that then becomes, okay, like Notting Hill, specific year, what's actually being listened to? There's kind of the stuff that I love, but would it really have been in that sequence? Like, is, is that restaurant 
going to have heavy rotation of in, like hyper cool crate digs that didn't actually really start getting attention until the 2010 repress no so it's actually really it's going to be this thing and you know you still want it to be an amazing tune and you want them to be memorable and you want them to be great tracks but you don't want to kind of falsify it and and make it feel incorrect to to the location and to the people and to the time there was also you know there was there was various friends and and um connections made throughout the series for myself and also for steve you know when you know we would chat with people because it's research like the the whole the whole point is it's music research it's kind of getting into the mode of maybe that record store owner has some great ideas and maybe that a and r person that i really trust who runs that record label has some really great ideas when i'm calling around trying to clear a specific song and you end up chatting to producer a or artist b and there was a, you know that happened a lot throughout the making of this i would ask them about certain experiences and certain scenes people who had had their own sound systems because that's that's how you keep it true and also keep it really sat- satisfying part of what's been really nice about putting up those spotify playlists and seeing people's response on spotify is that there's a bunch of tracks that aren't on Spotify. <laughs> and, you know, I wish they were all there. I wish I could populate it. And I wish that we could get it all out there and, and everyone could access it. But it's just, it's not all there. And hopefully we're, you know, going to down the line be able to get people to hear those through, through a soundtrack release. And, you know, we've got, we've got some things coming up we're working on. But it's also quite, it's also quite nice when you kind of, you get to that point of compiling and, you know, it's like this, this isn't all just found from the, the best of the best of reggae 2020. It's this, this is a, this is a, a whole, this is a whole pot of influences and a whole pot of different people's ideas, friends, associates, um, people who Steve's been in the writer's room with uh, people that we've been clearing tracks from and then gone down a rabbit hole of their own experiences the whole series kind of stands to a compilation of of real stories and other people's musical biographies and and yeah because of that i mean it's dense you know we've got over we've got like 100 tracks across five films and and original score on top so to be able to kind of populate that with a, a wealth of exciting and tunes that kind of celebrate the era we've kind of really pulled together and and made a team of it that's great. It's interesting to hear as well that it was not just a collaboration process between the people involved, but also, you know, Joe Bloggs at the record shop having their input and everything. Because everything, because it's such a, um, in a way, a period piece musically as well. There must be certain songs that you probably never thought of to include, and then you find it, and it must be so satisfying having that sort of like underrated gem just hidden yeah i mean definitely definitely with the dub tracks as well and you know we've got some like b-sides in there that were kind of like the harder ones to track down and and they're kind of more the ones that have been you know that aren't the that aren't lying around on spotify and and that are kind of more the the i mean there's there's some you know there's some great online sources like don't get me wrong like and, and a supervisor needs to use all of them but it's 
avoiding the world of surface skimming, like really getting to the core, getting to the heart of something and asking around is also, it's just really satisfying. Obviously this, this year has been a bit of a difficult one for social interaction, but the kind of contrary benefit of it has been people have been willing to have really long phone calls <laughs> with us about music when the time has come. And, you know, just to use Dennis as an example, which, cause that, that kind of started off getting Dennis involved, started off as a, you know, would you be up for, I'd worked on a project with Dennis um, just before small acts and asked him if he'd be up for having a chat with Steve about it all. And, and Steve was like dead up for, for meeting him as a, as a big like fan of the music that Dennis wrote and produced. And the two of them getting together and having chats about what what did these rooms smell like and feel like and just tell me every every tangible visceral thing about these sequences that he will then interpret and find his way of of capturing visually and then because of that we end up just having musical other musical conversations like Dennis and I on WhatsApp and I'd be like I don't suppose you know so and so and he'd be like yeah yeah course I do and then pass me another number and then I'll kind of call that person and ask them a question and and then part of that so oh, I don't suppose you've ever actually spoken to so-and-so just because that's come up and they go yeah yeah and then you just kind of end up going down this chain of people and it, it helped massively with clearances but it also helped inspire new song ideas I guess that works perfectly until one of them says well, no we're rivals I will never talk to that guy again. Um, I mean, I don't want to broadcast any stories on that, but there were a couple. No, 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 <laughs> I don't want to, no, 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 I don't want to get you into trouble. I just, uh, I just thought I'd no, make no, a joke. No, <laughs> <laughs> no this is still, that's quite, it's quite funny to hear. It's great that it's sort of, in a way, sort of snowballed in helping and making things run smoother. It's a really, it's a really tight musical community, and it's the thing. Like when I worked at that publishing company, as I mentioned, like it was a very similar thing. You know, there was just, I was going to say friends, but family members like are coming in to this building every day and hanging out, and it it really did feel like family, and um, people just kind of mobbing around and who had been there for years who were just like. Uh, it was like a, practically an open door policy to to local connections, which you just don't get in like a traditional office, you know, or like it's just didn't have that feeling at all. It was as far away from a corporate office as you could possibly be. And the, the, the way that that community, if I was speaking to somebody on the phone during the making of small acts and being like, look, I don't suppose you know did this, like the number of people that would then, I mean, there was one guy who I got a message from at one point about three weeks after I had asked them that in passing going, oh, I found that person's number and then like sending me this thing. And it's, it's just because, it, you know, it's a really tight community and they actually really care about each other's music being heard. And, and that's just, that's awesome and really inspiring and really refreshing when independent artists are supporting each other like that. And yeah, it's having a nice little, like I say, when you kind of see a Janet Kay going back up the charts and those kind of things, like it, it's, it's one of those moments where you kind of feel like, okay, like hopefully this all, hopefully the series beyond the anthology of films, hopefully it's making people buy some records and, uh, or stream some records and like listen, listening to these, these tracks more because they're, they're just from artists that we hugely admire. So it's, it's, um, it'd be really amazing if they're, they're getting that love.
No, I've had the um, playlist on nonstop, even when I was sort of writing questions out. I had it on in the background. But it's just such positive music as well. It's just something that you can listen to and feel quite uplifted by it. And just the sort of sounds and the various instruments that are used just makes it easier to sort of just listen. It's not nothing, there's nothing too in your face. It's just something to sort of just get you in a good mood. And yet, lyrically, there can often be so much, so much being said, just the, you know, be, be it kind of deep reflections on life and religion or be it far more political, there can just be so much in in a reggae tune which, um, which you know, might have been written and recorded in the 70s and yet still its message is still true. You know, especially a lot of the soundtrack that's in the Alex Wheatle film where we've got, you know, like the Max Romeos and the Bob Marleys and and the the, the Black Uhuru's of the world and revolutionaries. There's a lot of, and Linton Gwesi Johnson, like hugely, who's, who's an absolutely marvellous poet. Those songs just have so much, so much gravity and power behind them. Decades later, they're they're no less important. Um, it's it's rebel music. It's protest music. It's um, uh, it's it's got heart, but it's got urgency. Um, it's got real commitment. But yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I could listen to it all day, every day. And it's it's one of those things when you finish a finish one production that you've been kind of saturated in for so long. And then it's literally, you know, final mix day in lockdown in when were we like October, late October. And then it's like, okay, that's done. That's the last cue in small acts finished. And then I'm kind of sitting there and I'm like, uh, what's next? Like, what, what am I going to listen to now? I've been so obviously doing multiple projects at the same time all the time but like dub and reggae have become such a huge part of my daily life like so much more than usual and then you kind of get to the end and i was then in 1920 for my next production so it's kind of like you know into into scott choplin and show tunes it's like wow it was such a mad switch that does lead nicely on to my last question um what is next for you What's next? Uh, so we're working on the new series of Top Boy for Netflix, which, um, yeah, we're picking up where we left off um, from what was the first Netflix series, um, but the, that was the third Top Boy series, um, but the kind of first one on Netflix, and we've, we're on to the next one now. And we've got a new, really exciting new series uh, called Supo, which is a BBC series from an amazing new writer talent called Nicole Leckie. It's a, an adaptation of a one-woman show that she did, which is now coming over to BBC. It's kind of a, a part musical event series. Um, so that's, that's one to keep an eye out for, which will be late, late next year. And yeah, uh, Terence Davies' new film, Benediction, which stars Jack Loudon and Peter Capaldi, um, both playing Sigrid Sassoon earlier and later in life. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a whole, whole mix. Kind of, well, you know, it's era-wise jumping around it's really exciting to have different things to sink teeth into but yeah you know small small acts has been an amazing journey and, and there's there's still some exciting stuff coming up musically 
over the next few months for small acts. So I'm still kind of plugging away on those bits and pieces. But yeah, it's kind of nice to be back at the beginning of a production curve with these with these other projects. Ed, thank you for joining me today. And I really appreciate that you the time that you've spent with me. For me, it's been really interesting and eye-opening to hear all about music supervision in small acts. Yeah, thank you again. Cheers, mate. It's honestly, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, I told you the little story beforehand about waiting a dreaded week, which felt like the longest of my life for a response. And yeah, I was just over the moon when you got back to me. So yeah, thank you so much. If you're now just like, man, why did I wait a week? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? I think you probably knew that you wanted to do it, but you wanted to make me sweat. So uh, (laughs) I'm going to just take it as take that on the chin. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll wait for a response. Probably I'll do it after Christmas so that you know, if the Alta's the office pops up, then I don't need to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Nothing personal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again. Take care and stay safe. Cheers, man. You too. Bye-bye. All the best. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.